Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Revelation. A pretty special blessing on this particular text. And so, of course, it's written by John. That's John the Apostle, uh, who was very near uh, and dear to the Lord. It's written around the time of 95, 96 AD. And so, uh, the uh, Jerusalem has been uh, destroyed at this point, and um, John, as well as the rest of the church, certainly have experienced significant persecution. John is close to 100 years old at this point. Um, his friends, his, the other disciples, have since uh, passed away. They are in glory. They were martyred for their faith, and John is on the Isle of Patmos, he is in exile, and uh, uh, he's been laboring on the earth for the longest of all of the disciples, and he's suffering now uh, for his refusal to bow to the emperor uh, Domitian, and, um, and so he's had an incredible witness, he's been incredibly faithful, and now here he's out on this Isle of, of uh, Exiles. And so he's likely not the only one there. There are other prisoners there probably working the mines. Uh, Patmos is about uh, 15 uh, miles in its, what is that word? We're going to say around circumference. It's around, same thing. And uh, it's not all that big. It's out in the Aegean Sea. And... Uh, He's alive at this point, not because attempts at his life, of course, were not made, but because ultimately it was not yet God's time, right? I mean, John is, an, is a perfect example to us of the fact that a sovereign God holds our life in his hands. And so there were attempts at his life. They were unsuccessful. And so again, because of his witness, and his witness really throughout his life is just growing stronger and stronger and stronger. And so he, he's sent away in an effort to silence him. And so Domitian thinks, okay, if I can't kill this guy, I'm going to send him out to this island and that'll be enough of him. <laughs> so he thought, right? Then comes a vision, a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ that John's called to pen, to write it down, and to distribute it. And so eventually, of course, we, we know that John's going to get off of the island, and he's going to begin distributing this letter, not just to the seven churches, which we'll, we'll start to consider, albeit briefly here tonight, but it's going to go far beyond that. Of course, we, we know because here we have it uh, before us. And so... Uh, Domitian thinks that he's, he's got him, that he's, he's going to silence him, but God has other plans because from God's perspective, certain things must be revealed. God has seen fit to reveal things now in this time, and he's using John uh, as his means for that. And so remember then that there are many different interpretive approaches to Revelation these will come up throughout our study. Uh, four in particular that kind of have, have garnered the most attention, the first of which would be a non-literal or allegorical approach to Revelation. And this would really regard the book as one large allegory. Um, this, was, this, this stemmed 
more so from a particular view of the millennial reign, that there was not a literal millennial reign of Christ following his second coming, which kind of contributed then to an overall allegorical view of the text. There's the preterist approach, which really believes that Revelation is more of a symbolic history with some elements of eventual triumph in the last two chapters, but it's, it's symbolic, it's uh, somewhat historic. There's the historical approach to Revelation, which really holds to a symbolic presentation of the total church history that really Revelation has already unfolded. Much of what we see within the text has already occurred, according to this view. And then, and I'm simplifying these, of course, And then there's the futuristic literal approach, which I would say is supported by most conservative pre-millennial literal interpretations, which is where I would fall, which is where Calvary Chapel as a whole would fall. And this really looks at Revelation and says this is this we are to take a literal view of the text and uh, that most of the events are yet future uh, that are contained here um, within these chapters. And so. Again, I view Revelation as futuristic and literal with chapters 1 through 3 being somewhat historic. Uh, I say somewhat because certainly they are written to literal churches at this time addressing specific issues. But there is a pattern we'll see as we consider those seven churches that seems to kind of give us a picture of even church history as well. And so there is an element uh, or a prophetic element even to these first three chapters. But then really chapter four and beyond has a future fulfillment focus chapters four through 19 will encompass the time of the tribulation preceding the second coming of christ which we see in chapter 19 and then the millennial kingdom in 20 with 21 and 22 being the final events that accompany um, and that are following that major event and so we've got a lot to consider Uh, A lot that we're going to go through, and of course, as I mentioned last week, it would be my goal to present to the best that I can some of those different views as we make our way through it. Because, of course, though I am quite firm in my belief of Revelation, and certainly we are at Calvary Chapel, it is one of the distinctives, the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, the very visible and literal glorious second coming of Christ prior to a literal millennial reign is something that has long been sort of a a foundational point for Calvary chapels, but uh, we recognize also that we can very much uh, be in fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ who hold to some different perspectives on the book of Revelation. And so while we take a literal and futuristic approach with the book, um, it's also important to recognize here as we as we get into this here that there is symbolism. So when we say literal, uh, we recognize, and that's not to say that there isn't imagery, that there's not symbolism in the book. In fact, um, what we'll find through the course of this book is uh, John is going to say things like, I heard, he's going to say, I heard 28 times. He'll say, I saw 49 times. John will be transported back and forth from heaven, if, if I understand it correctly, 17 times. He'll sort of go and then, and then come back. 44 uh, visions that he'll articulate in the book. 22 times he's going to say that it was like something. The thing that he's seen, he'll say, this was like this. Uh, he'll say something was as something else. 65 times 
He'll say, behold, 30 times, drawing attention to a particular event. Uh, The word great is used 84 times throughout the book. The number seven will be mentioned 54 times. Angels, 74 times. The sea, 27 times. And so the symbolism and the language and the descriptions are all incredible. And, and we know that, that John, as we'll see here in chapter 1, is, is in the Spirit. He was, he was moved in the Spirit. And so he's seen things that for him, and, 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 and we're not going to get to any of this tonight, but there's elements of what he will see that many people suggest are, are very modern day things that for us, we would see and we would know exactly what those things are. But for John, being transported from the, from the first century to then seeing things that we look at today, he's going, I, I don't know what that is, <laughs> right? And so he, he says, well, it's, it's as this or it was like this. Many people believe that some of what John sees are going to be, of course, uh, Armageddon battle-like uh, Uh, machinery, even helicopters that he describes in a certain way that are sort of like an animal. And and we don't know this for sure, right? But we we can kind of speculate, well, well, goodness, if if we feel like we are living in those times, if if his return is, is soon, if the time of tribulation, if we're just knocking on that door, well, then certainly the things that we see around us would be very difficult for an individual to understand. And so they'll do their best to describe them as something or like something. And so there is naturally symbolism and, and, uh, and, and, and we're not going to be able to say for sure what all of those pieces are, but a literal interpretation doesn't suggest that symbolism isn't there. But it's important for us to be careful how much we say, hey, this is a symbol, this is a metaphor versus, no, this is what John is describing. Um, and so uh, let's go ahead and, and get back into it here this evening. We'll just go from the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. We read again the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's much here that, I, of course, I, I passed over last week. The, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Let's uh, pray together. Father, again, as we look to your word here, we pray, Lord, by your spirit, give us understanding. Uh, give us an appreciation, Lord, for this text. And, and Lord, if we might, just pray for that blessing, Lord, that comes upon those who read and those who hear and those who keep. May we be those people, Lord, that uh, seek to uphold your word and, and to abide in it, Lord. And So bless our time here tonight, Lord. Uh, we pray that it's pleasing to you and fruitful for us, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here it is, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. I mentioned last week, this is important. It's not to be, uh, I'm not trying to be dogmatic, but this is the title for the book, right? I mean, this is, this is not the revelation of John. He's the earthly author who by the Spirit is the reporter, the, the recorder of, of the things that he saw. But this book is about the revealing of Jesus Christ. We need to get that clearly on the front end. This is about Jesus. Every bit of this book is about 
Jesus. And, and once again, in the Gospels, we saw Jesus in his humanity to the, to the extent that we're able. And in fact, we don't even get much of a description of Jesus, really, uh, in terms of his physical description elsewhere in, in the rest of the Bible. I mean, we, we know from various texts, of course, that even culturally, he had a, he had a beard. We know that. Um, we, can, we can grab that from different verses that Scripture says he had no form or comeliness that, to suggest that he wasn't, he wasn't somebody who, who just sort of drew people unto himself by his looks. We, we know that children liked him, um, but there's not much that we have of his appearance. Most of what we, we get comes from just what we know of that region and other people in that area. Yet here in Revelation, we're going to get some pretty vivid descriptions of him. And certainly Jesus, the Son of God, who, who left his rightful place in heaven and did not consider it robbery, that though he was equal with God, he made himself uh, of, of low, no appearance. He becomes a man. And so in his humility is, is what we're most familiar with, with Jesus. But of course, uh, there was glimpses of it, whether it was in the, the miracles that he performed, those little glimpses. I think of the woman who touches the hem of his garment, and there's so many people around him, and the disciples are with him, and Jesus turns around and he says, who, who touched me? And we get the sense that the disciples are like, what do you mean, who touched you? Everybody's touching you. And he says, no, somebody touched me. Power went out, right? Those are those moments where if you're with somebody like that, and of course we can't relate. We're not, we've never been with somebody like that in that, in that context, right? And, and you've got to be thinking to yourself, whoa, what's it, this guy is he's different, right? He is, he is no mere man. And, and those, that was just the, the subtle stuff. What about when he's, when he's in the boat and, and he stands up and the, and the disciples who are experienced fishermen find themselves entirely at a loss. They're, 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 they're fearful for their own lives. And so these guys are clearly up against a storm that they're thinking, this is, this is more than we've ever experienced before. And this man who was sleeping, he gets up and he, he calms the storm. I mean, those are moments when you've got to look at Jesus and you've got to say, Whoa. And then for John to be one of, of, of a few that are taken up to a special place. And even but for a few moments, his glory begins to be revealed. And there he is, and he's conversing with Moses and Elijah. I mean, if you've ever thought, if you were ever in a place where you were like, my blown, that would be one of those moments. And all of that so, I mean, it didn't even hold a candle to what we begin to see here in Revelation, to what John saw. I wonder, like, what is our perspective of Jesus today? And when you think of Jesus, or maybe you picture Jesus, some of you are more, some of you are more visual, and, and, and by golly, man, I, I love the chosen, but, it's, but it messes with you, <laughs> because I'm thinking about Jesus now, and I'm picturing this guy, and he's just a guy. <laughs> he's a good actor. But I got to be careful because it's like he's not Jesus, right? And 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 we think of how do you think of Jesus? And and there's this there's this sort of this isn't you don't see this as much anymore. Praise the Lord. There used to be these, and and forgive me if you if you had one, like it's okay. There's grace for that. But I used to see these stickers and these T-shirts that said Jesus is my homeboy. Man, no, no, he's not. <laughs> Because John, if there's anybody that could say Jesus was my homeboy, it's John. And we're going to see at the end of this chapter that John falls before him as if he's dead. 
how do you think of Jesus? How do you picture Jesus? I mean, I don't know what to do with that other than just to say clearly He is is the risen Lord and Savior and, and He is beyond words. He's beyond what we can even comprehend. And so, and so here God gives this message to, to Jesus. Really, it's, it's kind of the, the Father through the Son who then works through an angel to show things to John and tells him, write these things down. This is it. This is the, this is the last stuff. Write it down. These things which must shortly take place. Now a reminder here again that the interpretation of shortly take place is better rendered when it happens, it will happen quickly. It is once it begins, it will come to a quick conclusion. Like we, we read of, of these things happening in the, in the last days, uh, it is not that these events are quickly upon us, but in their time they will unfold quickly. The word is entake. It's the word that we actually get the... Uh, Mackenzie? Tachometer. Yeah, see? Good thumbs up there. It means quickly or suddenly coming to pass. Um, and, and then remember this, as it, as it pertains to prophecy, there is no other event, I believe, that must occur prior to the rapture of the church. And so as we think about events happening quickly or when they begin, they will unfold quickly. What we need to understand in our age, if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, is that you would also then believe in the doctrine of imminency, which says it can happen at any moment. That like we're there. There's nothing else that needs to happen. Okay? A big piece of the puzzle here, of course, is Israel. Israel being a nation. Um, And so it can happen at any moment. And when it does, boom, we're going. Events are happening quickly. And so he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And so it's from God to Jesus to John through the angel to be a blessing, to reveal necessary things. And he says in verse 4, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. And so the original recipients of the book of Revelation were seven literal churches. And we'll consider them more in the weeks ahead. But these churches were struggling in different ways, mostly. Um, And we're going to see how amazingly these churches also served to give us a little bit of a historical overview of the church. But these are seven actual churches. John was familiar with these churches. He was involved with these churches. Again, seven in total. We've got Ephesus. Ephesus really, you could say, is the preoccupied church. Uh, Ephesus is the church that had uh, left their first love. You've got Smyrna, who is the persecuted church. And so when I say there's problems in the church, uh, there's trouble in the church, whether of their own making and their own doing or things coming against them. You've got Ephesus, you've got Smyrna, you've got Pergamos, which is the uh, lackadaisical church. You've got Thyatira, which is a neglectful church. You've got uh, Sardis, which is a powerless church. Philadelphia is the persevering church. And Laodicea, the famous one, 
uh, lukewarm church. I say famous because everybody seems to, to quote that one, right? Therefore, I will spew you out of my mouth and will consider um, some of what, what, what prompts that statement as well and why it may make a little more sense to the church contextually. Uh, even than what it does to us today. And so seven churches, uh, a lot of different things going on there. It's going to be exciting over the next couple of weeks as we start to look at those individually. And so he's writing to these churches, but of course it will go beyond. And he says here, as he's, as he's writing, he says, grace to you and peace. This, of course, is a common greeting. We see it elsewhere. It's important that to know and to always think about the fact that that's the order. You never see peace to you in grace. It's grace first, which then from that comes peace. If you know God's grace, if you know His unmerited favor, you'll experience peace. Amen? And so, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. What a title, right? And, and here He says, Him who, who is present, who was past, and who is to come, future. That about wraps it up, right? Kind of covers the bases. And then, and then he makes this, this statement here of the seven spirits who are before his throne. Most agree and believe that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And so in this, you would have God who, who is and who was and who is to come and, and the, the, the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, Jesus. So you had the, the Trinity here in this passage. And the reason people believe that this is the a reference to the Holy Spirit, they go back to Isaiah. Isaiah 11.2, which gives us somewhat of a sevenfold description of the Spirit, where it says, and again, Isaiah 11.2, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so, uh, here we've got the, the Father and the Spirit and the Son, Jesus, who is the firstborn. And He's the firstborn here of many who will be resurrected. And He, it says, is the ruler over the kings of the earth. He's the ruler over all kings of the earth. The question, of course, for us is, do you believe that? Do you believe that he's a ruler over the kings of the earth? Because, of course, it doesn't always look like it today, right? Sometimes you might be inclined to wonder, but we must remember that the enemy has been defeated, that Jesus has taken his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. And soon and very soon, as the song goes, we are going to see our king, and he will establish his rule and his reign for all of eternity. Amen? It's to Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. He's made us kings and priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You guys ever come to a verse, passage in Scripture, and you just say, no way. Anybody? That just me? No way. To Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. Man, we have got to be, this is one of my prayers, that when I read a passage like that, that I, that I pray, Lord, 
Don't ever, please don't ever let me begin to take that for granted. Right? I mean, if you guys haven't noticed, I'm on a bit of a communion kick. If you haven't picked up on it yet. And guys, I know, I mean, for some, well, of course, we'll talk about that more this Sunday. I mean, for some of you, you're like, man, yeah, the Lord's showing me some things. And others, I don't know, you know, maybe you're like, I don't get it. And I don't say that from a demeaning perspective. You might be in a place where you're like, I don't, I don't, what are you talking about? Right? It's communion. That's important. Right? I, I don't know. I don't know where you're at. But, but these are the types of things that I look at this and I say, man, God has, God has ordained a certain pattern, a, a, something for a sacrament, an ordinance. He says, do this often. And, and why? So that we remember that He loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. And, and, and then, so that right there, that really is mercy, right? That's him saying, that, that's God saying, look, I'm a good judge. I'm a righteous judge, and you're guilty. And so there must be a consequence. There must be a punishment, but I'm not going to put it on you. I'm not going to give you what you deserve I'm going to put that on my son. And so he demonstrates his mercy toward us and that while we were yet sinners, he loved us and gave himself for us. And then that's where we need to just go, okay, thank you, God. I'm good now, right? Praise God. I'm forgiven. We're done. We're good here. You've done enough, right? But, but God goes, no, I love you so much that I'm going to make you kings and priests. And this is better translated, in my opinion, that he's made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory. And, and here's the other thing with this is, is we get here and we get it a little bit in Hebrews. We get this sense that in some ways, Jesus, though he's equal with the Father, is he takes this, this humble position as, as our sacrifice and, and, and as our Savior that he... All, he, he he then brings us along with him and says, it's, it's our Father. He, he brings us into a place where it's almost like we're on his level. And it's like, what? wait, what? And he says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And so as we look at this here, and, and this is John just giving the introduction to the letter, but what we see here is this is a book by him, and it's from him, and it's to him. It's all about him. And, and it's about what he has done for us. And that he has made us a kingdom of priests so that we can then serve him and, and, and give glory unto him. We're part of this, this kingdom. We're priests. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9, he says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. That's you. So we'll pause there for a moment. That's you, guys. That's you, Christian. Do you know that about you? You, you, are, you are in ministry, okay? We, we have all been chosen. We are special people. We've been grafted into a holy nation so that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Lord, what have you, get, what have you, what have you called me to do in this life? Lord, what's my purpose? Proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. 
Right? We're, this is, we're, we're called to this. Right? Now, yes, God gifts us and equips us in various ways. Sometimes we get the, the, the privilege of, of, of ministry being the vocation. And sometimes it's ways in which we find ministry in the vocation, right? But in every one of those circumstances, we're called to be a people who proclaim the praises of Him who called us out of darkness. To be an example. And, and, and what did the priests do? They were there to represent God and to represent men before the throne. That's the privilege that we've been given as believers. To represent Him and to represent men before Him. And John says, verse 7, Behold, this guy I'm talking about, he's coming with clouds. And every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. Now this here, I believe, is speaking of his second coming his glorious second coming he is coming jesus is coming it is literal it will be visible it will be public all shall see and his church i believe will be with him that's us so i believe that i'm going to be with jesus at his second coming daniel Daniel writes, of course, and we'll be considering elements of Daniel throughout our study and Daniel chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14 Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought Him near before Him. Then to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Remember, for Daniel, the visions he saw, most of the visions he saw, God said, you close the book, you shut it up, that's not to be shared. But here in Revelation, it's going to be said, no, you write it down and you distribute it. This is to be known. I think of the, uh, whenever I think of the, the glorious second coming of Jesus, I can't help but think of the disciples when Jesus ascended into heaven And in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, it says, Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? I can't help but you know, picture these disciples there, and no doubt this was a pretty powerful moment. And in and, and Jesus, he's, he, he, he had been resurrected from the dead, and, and he had been among them and seen by many. And, uh, and now came the time for him to ascend into heaven. And Jesus said, listen, I, it's time for me to go. It's good that I go, that I can send the helper, the Holy Spirit, to come. And so it was a necessary thing for Jesus to go. And so he ascends there from the, the, the Mount of Ascension. There's actually a chapel in that particular place. Now we don't know if it's the exact spot, but on the Mount of Olives, and he goes up, and the, the disciples are just like, I, I don't want to look away. I mean, would you? Would you be like, all right, Jesus is gone, you know? No, you're going to be, and, and, and they're probably thinking, I, I can still see. I think that's him. A little, little bit there, right? I mean, and you're just waiting, and you wait, and then, and then he's totally gone, and, and maybe everybody's quiet at this moment, and you're just like, I'm, who's going to be the first? Who's going to be the first to look away? Nobody wants to look away. 
I mean, this is one of the most one of the most glorious moments in your life. It's probably one of the saddest moments for them. I mean, they're they're Jesus is alive, so they're pumped about that. But like, man, we really wanted you to stay, right? I, and it's just so the angels show up and they're like, "Hey, why are you guys staring up into heaven?" They're like, "Why wouldn't I be staring up into heaven?" But then they say, "This same Jesus, that guy right there, that same one who was taken up from you into heaven." He's coming back. We'll so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back. And it was the angel's way of, way of saying, you got work to do. He gave you a mission. Let's go get to work. He's coming back. He's coming with clouds. And every eye will see him. All of the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why? Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. I believe at this time the Jewish people will finally see and receive their Messiah King. For they had they'd rejected him before because for them, an early rabbinical teaching began to, to push this idea that they really couldn't understand how a conquering king could suffer and die. And so they began to sort of separate those things and many began to teach that there would be two messiahs, one that would rule and reign from a, 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 an authority perspective and another who would, who would die. And so in, in light of that teaching and, and in light of their, their hardness of heart and, and not believing how it is that somebody could actually rule and reign yet die, they missed him. And amazingly, they were the ones who were successful in orchestrating his crucifixion. Of course, we know that this was something that, that God allowed and was necessary. They missed him. And so he's the one that's coming back. And in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. John Walvoord, uh, formerly of, of Dallas Theological Seminary, since gone home to be with Jesus, he says this of verse 1 through 8. He says, Jesus Christ is the central figure of the opening eight verses of Revelation. He says, if no more had been written than that contained in this introductory portion of chapter 1, it would have constituted a tremendous restatement of the person and work of Christ, such as found in no comparable section of Scripture. He's basically saying, if all we had was these first eight verses, That'd be enough just to say, that's Jesus. That's who he is. And think about it here then. Jesus is the source of the revelation. He blesses those who read it and hear it and keep it. He is the witness. He is the source of grace and mercy through his blood. He has promised to come again. He shall be seen by all. He is the beginning and the end. And, and in that then, he's declared that he is the eternity of his uh, of. In, in him saying he is the beginning and the end, here the eternity of his existence is proclaimed. That is that he existed before any specific point in time, that he will exist after time has given way to eternity. He is the omnipotent and all-powerful one, that there is no limit to his power, that he holds all things together. And get this, he's given himself for you. Can I get an amen on that one? And not just that he has given himself for you, but he has taken up residence in you by his Spirit. And not just 
that He has taken up residence in you by His Spirit, but He is working for your good, conforming you, transforming you, to make you more like Him for His glory, that your life would be to His glory, and not just that, but then also to prepare you for glory. And, and, and so then we think, about, we think about this Jesus, and we sing we sing about things like there's nothing that our God can't do. And so if you believe that, and then you go, and He's in me, and He's with me, well then what does that say about you? And about your life? And about what He wants to do in you and through you and what He can do in you and through you? Guys, these are the things that we do, I believe that we need to, in our, in our devotional life, in our prayer life, we need to be thinking on these things, meditating on these things, and praying, God, give me a, a, an appreciation for this. Give me an awe for this. And that's just the introduction. John's just getting started. Now he says, verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom, and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so here now, John moves on and he begins to share what has happened. And we've already considered he's on the island of Patmos there in the Aegean Sea and he's there as an exile and he's fiercely focused on being found faithful. John is a guy who wants to finish well. And he's endured thus far. And it seems, I can only imagine here, that John is, is kind of thinking, man, I'm on my final mission now. As he begins to pen a letter to the churches. And he says, verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now he says here that I was in the Spirit. It says translated rightly from the Greek, I became in the Spirit. And this seems perhaps like more than just him saying, you know, I was like, having some good worship time. It's like in something, the Spirit moved in a powerful way. Uh, perhaps like he went into somewhat of a spiritual state that maybe isn't entirely unlike other uh, writers of the Bible who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen the, the texts that we have before us. Um, either way, I, I don't think it's wrong for us to say, man, John's like at another level. I mean, he's a disciple. He's, he's 100 years. He's been, I mean, this guy uh, no doubt knows what it means to seek the Lord. And he says it was on the Lord's day. This is interesting here because at face value you might say, oh, it was, he, was, he was praying in spirit and it was Sunday, right? And we, we certainly don't know that for sure. In fact, it seems unlikely simply because the Lord's day, as we often refer to it in terms of Sabbath, rarely is, is, is referred to that way in Scripture. Uh, and, and in fact, the Lord here, the Lord's, uh, possessive is the term uh, kyriakos, and it's used only two times in, in the New Testament. Here, and interestingly enough, it's used in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 20, uh, as it pertains to the Lord's Supper and communion. Now, um, so again, we can't be sure if John here is speaking of the Sabbath. Again, it was never referred to in this way. Oftentimes, it was the first day of the week. And um, if you take this word, 
out of a New Testament use. If you say, how, how was it used elsewhere? It was generally in relation to something imperial or government related. And so some think that this is in fact uh, John referring to the day of the Lord, which is more of a phrase that would capture aspects of the tribulation, his second coming, the millennial reign. And so I would say that this maybe seems most likely here that, that John is saying, I was moved into the Spirit. He was given a vision of the Lord's day, of these events of the end times. And he hears a voice as a trumpet. Now, we can be sure, I don't know how many of you are familiar with trumpets, but you know this isn't Jesus like, um, you know, this is like a... <laughs> <laughs> what is that? There's like a character, isn't there, that has like a trumpet for a mouth and he like walks around and, no, somebody. There is, isn't there? Yeah. Um, it's not that. Uh, whatever that is, isn't it? Um, trumpets, of course, were used to announce. This is likely like a booming sound, okay? I, again, these are the types of things John says, like a trumpet. There's a voice. Something that... That, that he hears and it catches his attention. And for us, in, in this trumpet here, it says, you, you write this. Now elsewhere, I know that in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 4, verse 16, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. Now to me, once again, I don't know what that sounds like, but as I read it, I think, that's going to be awesome. Right? This has to be powerful in many, in many respects and, 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 and personal here for John, but, uh, but far more than what we may uh, envision or, or have heard in our own lifetime. And verse 12, And of course he turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So here as John turns, because he hears this voice, he sees, and he's seeing these things. It seems literally he's not saying they were, they were like lampstands. In fact, he absolutely knew what lampstands looked like. And so he sees seven of them, seven golden lampstands. And, uh, and presumably these lampstands are like those in the tabernacle. These are intended to illuminate the tabernacle and, and the worship elements. Now, some of your translations may, may say candle stand. I would say that's the wrong translation. Um, they should read uh, lampstand. This is a lamp with oil in the tabernacle. Of course, it had seven branches and... Uh, these are the churches. So these are the seven churches. These are representative of the seven churches. And like any church, it's intended to be a light. And, and then we see in verse 13, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Now he refers to him this way here because of course as he begins to see him, it's as if he's saying this, this looks like Jesus, but, but man, he looks different. And it's one like the Son of Man. And so here the lamp stands again being a symbol of the churches. Well, who do we see walking in the midst of them? But, but Christ here in the midst of His churches. And what follows then? A glorious description of the risen Lord Jesus. And in His description, it is uh, clear that He is our High Priest. It says that He's clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. 
And so, though we're not given much, as the description here seems to suggest that of priestly garments, and, and Jesus then moving in the midst of His church. And, and it's an amazing thing even to see this in this moment and, and, and to think, like, what, what, is, what is Jesus doing today? We've considered it often as of late that He is seated there at the right hand of the Father. Ever, whoever lives to make intercession for us. He's interceding for us. If He serves in, in the priestly function as we're given sort of an image here, Him in priestly garments there amongst the lampstands that would be there in the tabernacle to illuminate the elements of worship, we would, we would then see that, and of course He is our high priest, but that He would be washing us. Right, that he would be uh, administering the, the, the functions that a priest would, but, but also here, and, and we get this certainly in the description that comes further, he's also inspecting here as he will give uh, instruction, as he'll give words for these letters to the churches. We know that he is he's, he's moving, he's, he's active, he's, he's inspecting his church, and we see that a warning's given that he'll snuff out that lampstand if it if a church isn't faithful. John continues to write verse 14 his head and hair were white like wool. And so here's some some symbolism. John's saying this is like wool, right? As white as snow and his eyes like a flame of fire. The hair here some say you know this is this is an element of purity certainly that would be true of Jesus others the wisdom that he is he is the ancient of days and eyes like fire uh, the the language here would suggest not just eyes that sort of look like fire but that fire that would be kind of coming from his eyes a piercing look and of course certainly his eyes will penetrate the lord knows all he knows all his feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters. The feet of brass, uh, some say speaks of judgment. We know throughout church history, brass and throughout the, the Bible, brass certainly speaks of, of, of judgment. Some suggest that this is somewhat of the refining, indicative of the refining that he went through or the fire that he went through for us. I would lean towards judgment. And hear the voice, the sound of many waters. And again, that's one where you're like, well, what does that sound like exactly? Well, have you ever heard the sound of many waters? Have you ever been to a place where you've heard a rushing waterfall and it's just constant? And you find yourself as you're talking with somebody in that setting that you've got to start to talk a little bit louder. What? I can't hear you because it's just powerful and it's. And it just keeps going and going, right? And maybe you start to make your way out of it and you're like, whoa, that was powerful. That was loud. And again, these are things we can only, only speculate here. This is the type of stuff that John's saying, this is what it was like. But it certainly then would speak of a voice of power and of authority. In verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now the stars will be spoken of again shortly here at the end of the chapter in verse 19. They are the seven, they are seven stars or angels um, or, or messengers. We'll, we'll talk about that of the churches. 
And then what exactly is this word that John sees? Well, you know, hey, if we're going to take it literally here, and, and, and certainly some would say no, this, what he's seeing is, is a sword kind of protruding from his mouth. Um, and some would say, well, in this particular case, John's certainly familiar with, with the idea of, of God's word being living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. His word being the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him. To him we must give account. And so some say, no, here John's just describing the word of God, that powerful, living and active word that pierces. And others to say, no, what he's seen is some sort of sword protruding from his mouth. And he says that his uh, countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. How many of you have ever attempted to stare into the sun? Hopefully not much recently, right? We've, we've grown beyond that. Um, but I know that uh, recently it's come up many times my, for us as well. I don't, and I think, it, I guess it's maybe this is the time of the year, but I know leaving our neighborhood right now at a certain time, like I've, I've literally almost like hit walkers and, and uh, mailboxes and other cars because I'm instantly just blinded. I'm like, I'm done. You're driving along. You're like, whoa. <laughs> it's just, you got nothing anymore, right? The other day, I'm, I got my head out the window and, and uh, in the sun, it's, it, and he says his countenance is like the sun shining. But yet he's able to see him here, which is what is absolutely amazing. And, and, and I think here of Paul, right? What, what did Paul see? In Acts chapter 26, 13, Paul said it was this, the brightness of the sun. And so again, we, we remember that Paul saw Jesus. But Paul, really all he saw was the brightness of the sun. And then what? The boy was blind for a little while, Right? So, I mean, and this is kind of the fun thing in, in, in Scripture is that we get these different accounts, whether it's Daniel or, or Paul's account here in Acts, and it's like these guys have seen things, and it, and it matches, right? I mean, they're seeing Jesus in verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And that's why for me, sometimes I'm like, ah, oh, Lord, like, like we just, here we are, we just read this. We just kind of read it, you know? And I, th- and I think we're sitting here, and we're thinking like, whoa, but I'm thinking to myself, Lord, whoa, doesn't cut it. You know what I mean? And I don't know, I don't know what to do about that other than, man, I just really hope that he by his spirit is working something in me that's that's continuing to create for me. Like, Lord, I want to see you. And I want to know this more. And I want to be in awe over this. And I want to just be, I don't ever want this to just be words on a page. But I also know that, that, that praise God, that, that anything right that we can experience here and now too is just going to pale in comparison to when we're, when, we're, when we're there. And to know for sure, as we've already kind of considered here, consider the relationship that John had with Jesus during his earthly ministry. I mean, he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Self-proclaimed. They had breakfast together and they were all snuggled up. Right? I mean, they were close. If there's anybody that could have a level of comfort with Jesus. And here John, he's down. Right? What do you think our response is going to be? <laughs> but then the amazing thing, right, is that Jesus, he comes and he lays his right hand. John says, he laid his right hand on me. And I got to think in that moment because he's like, I saw one as the Son of Man. And, and he begins to describe him and he's like, man, 
this is Jesus, but this is a different kind of Jesus. And he falls before him, and, and I can't help but think that as that hand touches his shoulder, that he's like, I, I know that touch. And then he hears it. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Why? If somebody says to you, well, because I'm the first and the last. Is that, is that, do you go, oh, okay. I'm not afraid then. Or are you like, well, what? I have the keys. Right? Those things in and of themselves maybe don't cause us to go, I'm not going to be afraid anymore. When we think about what Jesus is proclaiming here, He's saying, look, I am the first and the last. There is nothing before me. There is nothing beyond me. I am He who lives. I was dead, but I triumphed over death. Behold, I am alive, and not just now, but forever. And I have the keys, which means I have the authority over hell, over death. And so he says, yeah, don't be afraid. And so this, this should mean to us when we really consider this, he's saying, I have all authority. I'm in charge. If you're in fear, and we'll, we'll close here, if, if, if you're ever in fear, if you're in fear now, but certainly if you're ever in a place of fear, there have been, what is it that calmed your fear? I mean, think about it. Think about it as a little kid maybe. And you go to a parent, and a parent tells you not to be afraid. Well, and you believe them. Why? Because you trusted them. Because in your opinion, they had authority. They could keep you safe. They could control whatever it was. Right? I mean, don't overcomplicate this. This is a simple thing. Jesus here is saying, look, I've got everything. I'm the one. I'm in charge. I'm in control. I'm the first and the last. I have all authority. You don't need to be afraid. Is there anything that's changed about who Jesus is? No. That means, guys, that when we have fear, all we need to do is trust in Jesus. Amen? Write the things, verse 19, which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And so here, John has given really insight into what he's going to be shown, and he gives to us really an outline for the book. Up through this verse, verse 19, the things which you have already seen. John's done it here. He's written it down. Okay, this is what I've seen. In chapters 2 through 3, the things which are the letters to the church, churches. In chapters 4 through 22, the things which shall take place after this. It's Greek metatauta, after these things. And so here, we get an outline of the book. And so for people who are a little afraid of the book, I mean, man, he's given us an outline right at the beginning. So this is what we're going to talk about. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And so there we get clarity. Those are the seven churches. The stars in his hand are the angels. And we'll talk about this next week. It's debated. Are those actual angels, messengers of the church, or are those messengers, the pastors, the leaders of those churches? And so John here is just getting started with what he saw and what it reveals to us. And of course, we know this revelation has bearing for us today, and we are blessed for hearing it, for reading it, and for keeping it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks once again for your word. What a blessing, Lord, 
Thank you for our time together here this evening. Lord, I pray you'd continue to bless us. Lord, go before us. Continue to lead us and guide us. I pray that you bless each of these here, Lord, as they follow after you this week. Our week's finished well, Lord, and be for your glory. Lord, that you continue to work in our hearts as you are ready to bring us back together into fellowship on Sunday or small gatherings in between. Lord, that you'd bless all of those times. And, and Lord, as it pertains to this word, may we meditate upon it. May we consider it. Lord, as we've looked here even tonight in the first many verses of this chapter. Lord, there is so much for us to meditate upon each and every day to consider who you are, what you've done for us, Lord, what you've called us to, how you're working, what your promises are, Lord, for us. There is so much for us, Lord. Literally, there's not a day that goes by where we don't have reason to give you praise, to worship you, to magnify your name, to be a people who are about, Lord, uh, proclaiming your goodness as kingdom of as a kingdom of priests, Lord, representing you to a lost world. And so, Lord, may we be faithful in these things by your Spirit. Lord, I pray that as we give ourselves to the study of this Word, Lord, that you would do a wonderful work in us. It would be evident, Lord, that uh, it's bearing much fruit in us individually as well as corporately as a body. And so, Lord, we uh, thank you for this time. Once again, Lord, I pray for each of these here, Lord, as they follow after you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure that you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit our website at ccnortheast.org.